but anyway, um, we have this brick wall set up here. Pastor Rick saw, saw this this morning. He's helping me stack those up. And he's like, so you going power team today? <laughs> I was like, yes, I am going to smash all of those with Topher's forehead. <laughs> so... Uh, no, I am not. Hopefully the, uh, you know, the word, the uh, visual analogy will become apparent because if it's not in any way apparent to you why there's a stack of bricks right there, I have failed miserably in my analogy-making skills. Uh, have you ever used or heard the expression, I have a heart for blank? What's funny about that is it's kind of like the word love in our society. Uh, you know, we, we say the same word, but we have, there's varying degrees, right? Because, like, I love my wife, but I also love, you know, Taco Bell. Just kidding. No one loves Taco Bell. Um, but, you know, it, there's varying degrees of how much heart you could have for something. Like, I have a heart for the people who live in my house, for Brandy and Micah and Hannah and Ezra. Uh, I'm, I'm crazy about those people. I, I have a huge heart for them. Uh, but I also have a heart for Brandon's chicken wings. Yes. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes they come to me in my dreams. Uh, <laughs> I also have a heart for college football. Pretty much, you know, at this point of year, I'm basically just waiting for September. That's basically what summer is for me, because I have a heart for college football and nothing else that's on television in the summertime. Uh, but, you know, something way more important than that that I have a heart for is I have a heart for this church. Uh, I, have a, I have a heart for the gospel and the church globally, but specifically for this church. I, I love the people who are part of this church. Uh, and if that wasn't true, I just wouldn't say it. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that because it's, it's pastor speak. I love the people who are in this church. I pray for the people who are part of this church. Um, I pray that uh, God would meet your needs. I pray that you would know him and walk with him closely and experience joy, uh, experience the peace that comes from just being secure in God's love. I pray that your endeavors would succeed and prosper. And one of the things I pray often um, because I'm, I'm a parent, I pray for your kids and your grandkids. Because I know that if you have children or grandchildren or even just young people in your life that maybe aren't related to you but that you care about, um, I know that at the end of our lives, we will care about one thing. Do our children and grandchildren know Christ? Literally nothing else in the world will matter to us at that point. Uh, I get that because I feel the same way. And so I pray that all of our kids and our grandkids, the young people in our lives, would, would know Jesus um, and, and not just have Jesus as an accessory to their life, but actually walk with him, but actually know him in a deep and meaningful way. Uh, I, have, I have a big heart for the people in this church. And, uh, you know, it's been really amazing for me to just kind of see what's happened in the last almost four years now since we kind of initially started Center Church. Over half the people that are part of this church weren't here four years ago. Uh, God has established a, a family, a community in that way. There are people now, today, who have a relationship with Christ, have said yes to Jesus, who weren't in that position four years ago. It's pretty cool. We'll be in, in eternity with more people than we would have uh, before. And so uh, I'm excited about that. But as I look out at the landscape of, of what Center Church has been, what it currently is, and, and what lies ahead for us, it really is apparent to me that in the last three and a half years or so, uh, we've kind of methodically slowly, maybe even by some trial and error, laid a foundation for the things that lie ahead. And uh, if you've been here, you know, consistently over those four years, you may have picked up on the fact that every summer, Pastor Rick and I try to talk kind of identity. Who are we as a, as a church family? Uh, we try to do that in the summer just to keep us calibrated, pointed in the right direction. But as I look at the landscape, I realize um, there's, there's so much more than, that lies ahead of us. 
There's a lot of things in the past that I'm really fond of, but God has so much more still ahead of us. And the truth is, it's not because of external things. It's not because we will perfect this thing or that, uh, you know, because it's not because we're going to have laser beams in the future and that'll be like the ticket to expanding the kingdom, although laser beams would be awesome. Uh, I don't, I don't think that's it. Um, I don't think that's why. I think there's a really specific reason that in this season, God has prepared us for something new as a family and as individuals. It's because the thing that we've really seen happen over the last five, six months is God has really uh, brought our focus from all the things that had to be dealt with to kind of establish ourselves and, and establish some kind of stability in the church family. He's brought all of that down into a fairly narrow focus that Pastor Rick talked about last week, helping people know Jesus. Uh, God has, has allowed us to really focus in on that. Now, if you're a list person, you'll understand really clearly why I'm optimistic about that. Because if you're a list person, you know that the things that get on the list, the things you focus on, those are the things that get done. The, the things that are on the periphery, sometimes they get done, sometimes they don't, but the things that you're focused on, they get handled. Now, those are the things that get done. And so I'm excited about the fact that we've really been able to narrow down our focus into this one area of helping people know Jesus. And I, I'm confident more than ever before that now that we've established a central focus, we can accomplish the things that God has turned our focus toward. And so uh, I want to just kind of continue on to what, from what Pastor Rick talked about last week, and I want to read a verse to you, um, a couple verses, found in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is uh, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and what's interesting about Ephesians is that uh, Paul traveled around and he started all these churches all over, uh, gosh, all over kind of Western Asia and Southern Europe, and, uh, and then he would write letters back to the churches after he had had left, but this particular church, he didn't start this church. Uh, he was in another place, uh, and someone came and heard the message about Christ, and then, crazy enough, did exactly what Paul was telling them to do, went back to Ephesus and started a church there, started to, to spread the gospel. And I want to read this to you from, uh, from the message. Now, the message is not a translation of the Bible. It's a paraphrase or a, a retelling, and I tend to kind of shy away from it. Uh, but in this particular case, I think it does a good job of articulating in sort of uh, common vernacular the idea that Paul is expressing to the Christians. So in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, it begins in verse 19, it says, God is building a home. God is building a home, and he's using us all. Irrespective of how you got here, God is using us all in what he is building he used the apostles and the prophets as the foundation. He began with them, but now he's using you, and he's fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone, the one who holds all things together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple, I love this part, a temple in which God is quite at home. I love the idea that right here among us, God's at home here. God feels at home. He doesn't come in and feel like an outsider, like what are they doing? Do I belong here? God feels at home with us. That's, that's the idea. And this is what God is doing. Regardless of how you got here, whether you're you know, over here on this side and, and you've just been a Christian, you've been to church your whole life and have the most spotless background, um, God's not overly impressed with that. 
But maybe you're over here on the other side and, and you've just been a disaster. Like you've broken all the commandments at once on a daily basis. <laughs> Regardless of how, how you were before you came to Christ, all of us have an equal role. All of us have an equal role in this family of God and what he is building, regardless of how we came in. So you say, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean that God is building us into a house? Uh, it'd be nice to kind of put some touchable uh, concepts to that. So here's how that works. Before Jesus, uh, back in the Old Testament, as you read through the narrative, you'll see, this, uh, you'll see this at work, God's presence dwelt in a particular place. And there were different iterations. You might remember Moses up on, up on the mountain. He received the Ten Commandments. Or you might remember the tabernacle, which was kind of a, kind of a traveling place of worship. Uh, or the temple, which Solomon eventually was able to erect this massive, amazing temple that stood for a very long time. Maybe the most impressive structure that ever existed. But what's really funny is when you read about it, after generations of trying to build this thing, when it's finally done, in all of its splendor, Solomon looks at it and he says, will the uncontainable God dwell in that? He's kind of like, oh my gosh, what were we thinking? Do we really think we can contain God in a building? Is, is his response to generations of work. Wow, talk about all-time letdowns. But, Jesus, but God's presence would dwell in a physical place. But now Paul says, God's building a new house. And what we see throughout the New Testament is this ongoing explanation that now God, God's presence actually dwells with us, with those who have received reconciliation to God through Christ. That's where, that's where God's presence dwells. And it kind of makes sense uh, because, you know, the idea that we could build a building impressive enough to contain God, I can see why that's a little bit laughable to Solomon. What better place for God's presence to dwell than among us, the pinnacle of his own creation? None of us could ever create anything as amazing as, as humanity. And this is the role of the Holy Spirit, the, uh, the attribute of God that dwells with you. So now we are God's home. Fast forward a little bit from God's presence in the temple to Acts chapter 7. We find a guy there named Stephen. Stephen was, uh, apart from Jesus, the first person to ever be killed because of his faith in Christ. And then we find Stephen's story in Acts chapter 7. And through Stephen, God asks us a pretty foundational question. What kind of a house will you build for me? What kind of house will this, will this be? Stephen's just gotten done explaining this whole idea that, that we can't contain God's presence in a building. And he says, what kind of a house will you build for me? God asks us that question. In the context... Stephen's actually quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and he's basically making the same point that Solomon made with his rhetorical question. He's saying, you can't contain God in buildings. You can't have enough religious ceremony to fully encompass the splendor of God. That's kind of a silly thought when we think about it. So he says, we, the church, we're God's house. So what kind of a house are we? We're like a you know, mid-century ranch California split. Sometimes I feel more like a single wide out in the backwoods of North Idaho, uh, which I'm kind of a city dweller. Like maybe some of you are like, oh, it sounds amazing. I'm, I'm more of a city person, so not that amazing to me. Um, what kind of house are we? I don't know about you, but whatever it is, I want to be the best house for God that we can possibly be. 
I'd love to be the kind of house, and I'm talking people, not a place. I'd love to be the kind of house that when people see it, when people come into it, they think, God lives there. That's God's house. That it becomes apparent. I want to be that kind of house. So last week, Pastor Rick talked about uh, Center Church. What are, what are we doing here to play our role in God's plan? And, uh, and he posed a, a series of questions and then offered an answer to them. And so I just want to revisit those because uh, that's kind of our big idea of where we're, where we're at now. The first question was a pretty obvious one. What are we doing? That seems like a pretty foundational question that maybe we should have an answer for. And the answer that he gave is our answer, not just his answer. It's we're helping people know Jesus. That's the thing that we want to focus in on continually. That's the thing that we are focused in on. If you wonder what Center Church is about, that's it. Helping people know Jesus. Now, here's, uh, here's what's interesting. Uh, I can totally understand how you might hear me say that, and you might not overtly think this, but in the back of your mind, maybe you're thinking, okay, that's like what Pastor Rick and Pastor Kelly are about, helping people know Jesus. Here's what's funny about the way God works, just in his sovereignty and in his authority and the power that he has in our lives. If, if God has placed you in this church family, uh, whether that's for today or whether that's for the next 30 years, uh, that's actually our mission. Uh, Pastor Rick and I don't decide that. We pursue God and, and uh, try to do our best to hear from him and articulate that, but but in the end, he has his way, doesn't he? And so because God has made us a family, us into a house, that's actually our house. That's our mission, helping people know Jesus. We own that equally. And there's all kinds of wonderful causes out there that we could be about, all kinds of things that we could put a lot of energy into. But we know that we can't do everything. Uh, sometimes I wonder if we can do one thing. Uh, but this is the thing for us. This is the thing that we've said, this is what we're going to be about. We're going to turn our attention toward becoming as good at this as we possibly can. Helping people know Jesus. So if you're a people, that means you. Today, right here in this next 15, 20 minutes or so that we're going to be here, I hope that in some way you can know Jesus a little bit more. Because that's our mission, helping people know Jesus. But that begs an obvious question. Why? Why do we want to do that? Why is it good? Why is it a worthy endeavor? And, and the truth is there's a lot of good answers to this. You could say, uh, well, because we want people to go to heaven. Yes to that. That is a valid answer. Uh, we don't want people to go to hell. Hell, hell bad, heaven good. Yes, that's a valid answer. Uh, but here's, here's our answer to why. I think you're going to find a lot of things fit into this. But our answer to why we're focused on helping people know Jesus is because Jesus will do new and better things in you and through you. Some people could take that ball and run with it to all kinds of places that God didn't intend. Like, oh, God wants me to have a pile of cash. No, I didn't say that. Uh, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't be opposed to it if he did want me to have one, but that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is Jesus can do, not can do, he will do new and better things in you and through you. So let me just, let me just kind of give you an example. It's really actually pretty simple. Knowing Jesus opens the door for him to work in your life. Knowing Jesus opens the door for him to bless you. It opens the door for him to give you his peace, to give you his joy, to help you grow into a more gracious and patient person. Knowing Jesus 
opens the door for you to help others experience transformation. Knowing Jesus opens those doors. Apart from knowing Jesus, those doors remain closed to us. So when we know Jesus, if we can accomplish that task, we've opened the door to see him do new and better things in your life and through you in the lives of others. So those are kind of our collective, we should have the same answer to those two questions. What are we doing and why? But it begs for the individual a third question. How does what I'm doing, how does it fit into what we're doing? How does the role that I play fit into this helping people know Jesus? Uh, Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't uh, in some way, but I would guess it probably does in more ways than maybe you think, just at a glance. Sometimes there's ways that we can do, we could be doing something good and useful that maybe doesn't fit into that. Narrowing down our focus will help us realize, okay, we can't do everything, so we're going to have to kind of push these things off to the table and do these things that God has really, uh, that really fit into the mission God's given us to help people know Jesus. So I'll give you an example of how something really good might not fit uh, under that umbrella. Years ago, I was a youth pastor in Yakima. I've been there for two weeks. I don't know, I don't know anybody except the people that I had met in that two weeks. Um, I don't even know that I had ever been to Yakima. I don't remember ever going there in my life before I went there to work at this, uh, at this church. And there's a woman in the church, uh, really a great lady, but Um, let's say, how would I say, very type A, very outspoken, very opinionated, you know, the kind of person that we all just really love to have walk into our office and give us the business. Um, She came to me, it was just just maybe a month before Christmas, and uh, she was very insistent that we had to have a youth choir. Now, at this point, I'm like 26 years old, uh, never never been in a choir, never really been around a choir, so like automatically, I'm like, "Eh, I don't know about choir. But, uh, but she gave me a reason. She had a thoughtful reason. Her reason was because the arts are important. Uh, that may be the case. Um, I like the arts. Uh, to different people, they're more important than other things. But the problem is we have this church, this community of Christians, people who love each other, we're on a mission together, and the mission is not to support the arts necessarily. Uh, it didn't fit in with the direction that the rest of the church was going. Now, she could have changed her pitch, because um, we have expressions of the arts here, right? Just a few minutes ago, some musicians led us in worship songs. We sang to God and about God and expressed our praise to him. Now, that, that expression of the arts, that makes sense with what we're, we're doing, but uh, just the idea that we want to just promote the arts didn't necessarily fit in with the mission of the church, and so um, you should know that we ended up not having a youth choir, and it was quite a to-do, uh, but we ended up not having one because of that. It just didn't fit in with where we, were, where we were going. Asking yourself the question, how does what I'm doing fit in with what we're doing, will really help us answer the question, what kind of a house are you building? What kind of a house are we building for God? So, so what does fit in with what we're doing? I just want to give you another, uh, just another example of something that does fit in. Because sometimes it has to feel really spiritual and important for us to feel like we're accomplishing anything, but, uh, but that's not necessarily true. It can be very practical. Uh, if you read through the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life, what you'll see is Jesus is like constantly eating. He's, he's always eating. In fact, I read an article about this this week uh, by a guy named Mark Glanville, and the article was called, Jesus Ate His Way Through the Gospel. Uh, which was sort of tongue-in-cheek, but then if you read it, you're like, yeah, kind of. It seems like he eats a lot. He ate with the tax collectors. He ate with 
his disciples. He ate with people who were kind of loose followers, but mostly just posers. He ate with people who were just there for the spectacle. He ate with sinners. He ate with the saints. I mean, he just, he just was constantly eating with people. Apparently, he felt like that mealtime was, was a moment. It was something that he could capture to invest in people. Now, some people in their theology feel like the meal itself is sacred. I don't know if I'm really in that camp, but what I do know is uh, when I'm eating, like, I'm there. I'm here for this. Last week at the barbecue, I was like, yes, I'm focused on what's happening at this table right now, not all the other stuff going on in my life. Apparently, Jesus identified that, and he sat down, and he had a meal with people. So if you uh, brought something to eat last week, or you, um, man, thanks to the guys who went out and bought all that meat with their own money and, and prepared it for us, or maybe you moved a table or a chair, or maybe you didn't, maybe you ate, maybe you talked. Whatever your function was in that setting, thank you for helping the rest of us know Jesus, for helping us capture that moment to encourage one another and invest in each other. Now, it could have been just a barbecue. All kinds of organizations have barbecues. Churches have barbecues. Schools have barbecues. Used car lots have barbecues to create a buzz, right? I mean, if you're, depending on your organization, you call it something different. If you're a church, you call it outreach. If, you're, uh, if you use car lot, you call it marketing. Um, and I don't think either of those things are bad. Like, sometimes Jesus did things that created a buzz, right? Like, oh, well, chop that guy's ear off. Let me put that back on. Uh, that probably created a buzz. But when we decided, when we first started this church, there's like 30 of us maybe, uh, we decided to have a barbecue. The reason was, we saw what Jesus did, and we realized, apparently Jesus thought this meal time was useful time to invest in each other, so let's do that. So if you had a role, even if your role was just consuming, thank you for helping the rest of us do what Jesus did. Know Jesus a little bit more. See, even the simple things, even the small things that seem insignificant, even in those, we can help people know Jesus. It's just one example of how what the things you might be doing fit into what we're doing. Uh, as safely, I can assume from Scripture that that's a house God feels quite at home in, that God likes to dwell in a house like that. And as God is building us, and, uh, and as we're endeavoring to fulfill this mission to help people know Jesus, I think there's some essential qualities, and I just want to give one of those qualities five minutes before we, uh, before we go today. One of the essential qualities of this house that God is building is, it has to be a house of hope. Because if we can't help people find hope, I don't really know what else we can do. You, you know what I mean? Uh, if we can't represent Christ in that way, uh, I think we'd probably have to just reevaluate our focus. One of the essentials in this house that God is building is hope. It's got to be something we can offer people. Jesus said in Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 19, verse 10, he, he sort of gave this um, description of why he came. He said, I came to seek and save what is lost took all the stuff he was doing, he was doing a lot of important things, but he sort of just boiled it all down in one statement. I came to seek and save what is lost. You know, if we can't do what Jesus came for, um, I, don't, I don't know what else we'd be doing. And the truth is, I think we all want to do what Jesus came for, so I don't, I don't think it's hard to get you on board with that idea. Um, but here's something that's just kind of a strange experience for me. 
Over the last 10 years or so, um, I've spent a lot of Sunday mornings standing in, far to, in front of, not, okay, not that one, standing in front of uh, adult congregations. Uh, that was good. That was one for the highlight reels right there. <laughs> uh, I spent a lot of Sunday mornings standing in front of adult congregations, and before that, it was a lot of student congregations. And one of the things I know, uh, kind of regardless of the size of the group, One of the things I know every time I get the opportunity to talk about Jesus is that there's somebody in the room who has a very freshly broken heart. Uh, They don't have to scroll very far back in their mind to to get to the moment of pain. Uh, There's always somebody, usually a lot of people, uh, in the room who are kind of freshly wounded. And that could be for a lot of reasons. I mean, that could be some bad news from a doctor or an employer. Uh, It could be some bad news from a spouse who's pretty close to, you know, deciding they're done. It could be for a lot of reasons. There's always somebody in the room, maybe listening online, uh, who's dealing with something pretty painful in their life. It might be the death of a dream. might be a kid who's kind of off the rails. Could be all kinds of all kinds of different things. I always know that even today, every time we do this, somebody needs this church right now to be a house of hope. Somebody needs that, and maybe that's you. Maybe that's not you. I'm not a gambler, but I would bet every dollar in my pocket against every dollar in yours that in the next day you're going to encounter someone who has a freshly broken heart, and they need you to be a house of hope. I want to be there. You know what I mean? When, when I come, against, come, come up to someone who needs that, I want to be that for them. I want to be able to fill that role. Say, God, if, if you can use me, I'm available right now, not pass them on to somebody else. You know what I mean? I, w- I want people to be able to find that when they come to us because people are going to show up with freshly broken hearts. And, and I know that we can't solve every problem. I get that. But what can we do? Can we do the things that God has equipped us to do? You know, when someone comes into our presence, whether it's here on Sunday morning or maybe it's, you know, just your cubicle at work or they ride in your car, when they get out, do they feel like they were cared for? Do they feel like I shouldered their burden? Maybe I couldn't fix it, but do they feel like it mattered to me? I want to be able to provide that for people. And and, uh, if you're carrying a heavy heart today, I just wanted to share this, uh, this verse with you. Uh, because I, I think it will give you some hope. You know, sometimes the hole gets so deep that you can't really see the way out anymore. And uh, I, just want, I just want you to know, I want to read this verse to you, so that you'll know God has an outcome in mind for you, so that you'll be reminded of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, the Bible tells us, uh, as it does in many other places, not to, not to fixate on what's right in front of us, not to fixate on, on the fact that we can't, fix the situation, that we don't have enough power, we don't have enough ability to overcome the obstacle, but rather to fixate on God's authority, on his wisdom, on his ability. And this is what Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. He says, what no eye has seen, and what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, these are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. For the heartbroken, man, I just want you to know that God has a future already prepared. You know, maybe your job situation's not what you'd like it to be. 
Your relationship situation is not what it's like to be. Your, you know, your parenting situation. I mean, there's all kinds of circumstantial stuff, but God has a future prepared, and it's better than what you can even conceive. These are the things that God has prepared for you. So I hope you'll let that be an anchor for your soul. Jesus had this interesting kind of what am I doing moment, and I think it's, think it's significant for us. There's this situation recorded in Luke 4 uh, where we get kind of this interesting crossover because the Old Testament was mostly originally written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was mostly originally written in Greek. Uh, there's Aramaic and some other dialects in there, but for the most part, it was those two. Well, uh, Jesus is going to get in this situation where he's going to quote an Old Testament prophet, which was uh, Isaiah, which was originally written in Hebrew and translated to English. But in Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel is translated from Greek into English. So you get kind of this weird overlap. Uh, it's only important because uh, when I read what he quoted from Isaiah, I want to read from Isaiah. So you'll hear what the people originally heard in there because uh, the verbiage is just a little bit different. So the scene is, Jesus walks into the synagogue uh, on Saturday, because that was their day of worship, on the seventh, the seventh day, as he often did. He walks in, and he's going to teach. Now remember, a lot of people call Jesus rabbi, which means literally teacher. And uh, so to a lot of people, that's who he was. He's a Jewish teacher at this point. That's, that's kind of what they're viewing him as. So he walks in, and, uh, and he stands up in front of the people, and he pulls out this scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah lived roughly 700 years before Jesus, and, and he was a prophet. Many of his prophecies had come true at this point, and uh, so he had a lot of authority with the people. So when Jesus reads from Isaiah, the people are like, boom, this guy's the real thing. I'm, I'm all ears. They're listening in. And so uh, Jesus begins to quote from what we now know as Isaiah 61, and this is what he says. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now remember, Isaiah wasn't talking about himself. He's talking about the Savior who's going to come a little bit later on. And uh, in our context, what happens is, uh, any modern context, the speaker stands, you know, everyone else sits and, and listens. Well, in their context, it was kind of different because uh, Jesus is standing, he reads it, everyone stands up for the scripture, and then depending on the environment, but most of the time, the person teaching would actually sit down and everyone else would stand. Like, I think we should go back to that, but, but that's, uh, that's, that's what happens. So Jesus, he reads, and, uh, and then this is what Luke tells us happens next in Luke 4.20. It says, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began saying to them, this scripture in Isaiah 700 years ago, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, right now, this is fulfilled. I don't know if there's ever an appropriate time to actually drop a microphone on the floor, but if there ever was, this is that moment right here. 700 years of waiting, I'm the guy. The one who would come and bring hope to the poor, who would restore the joy and the hope of the brokenhearted, who would declare freedom and pardon for those who are stuck in a pattern of sin and bondage, the one who would come and relieve the, the weight of burden from people's souls, that's me. That's what he says. And it says that all the people were like, oh my goodness. They were just enamored with it and they spoke well of them, Luke goes on to say. But Jesus came to do all of that 
to declare healing for all of those people. And that's why it's so essential for us to help people know Jesus. Okay, I can't do all that stuff, but he can. It's so important for me to help people know Jesus and make God's house into a house of hope. Hope for the poor, the marginalized, the struggling in our society, the heartbroken, the discouraged, people who, uh, who are just stuck in sin and addiction. Jesus came to declare freedom for them. What better thing could I do for them than help them know Jesus? And God is building you and I into an agent of that hope. That is, that is what God is doing here. He's building us into a house where that hope can be found. So I just want to ask you this question. In what ways in your life are you helping people know Jesus? Are we leading him toward that place where they can find freedom, where they can find healing? And I know that every one of us has a story. You know, I get, I get a microphone, um, so I get to articulate my story, but I'm not the only person here with a story. You have a story as well. And, and we've uh, kind of initiated a process of trying to gather up some of our stories. Uh, if you were to go to our website, uh, down at the bottom of the homepage, you find a little place that says, tell your story. I want to encourage you to consider going there and telling your story. We want to gather some of those up. And the reason is this, uh, that we all have a role. God is building us all in. He's fitting us all in together, brick by brick. And your story might be the one that encourages someone else. Your story matters just as much as mine. I just have a microphone. And I know that it requires some vulnerability and not everyone will do it. I, I understand that. But I'm not the only one with the story. You have one too. And I want to make sure there's a way for that to get out there because God might just want to use that story because he's using us all. God in his sovereignty is building a home. He's using us all irrespective of how we got here in what he is building. He used the apostles and the prophets for the foundation and now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. He's building something great. He's building a home for himself. I want to be a part of that. I want you to be a part of that. And he's giving us this specific mission to help others know Jesus, to help each other know Jesus. And so I want to close by asking you this question. Uh, it's sort of rhetorical, but I, I want you to hopefully just have some time to reflect on this throughout the week. And it's just a really simple question that I asked earlier. How does what you're doing, how does what I'm doing fit in to what we're doing? If we can answer that question, if we can cultivate this unity of purpose, I have absolutely zero doubt in my mind that there's no limit to what God can do in our lives and through our lives. I think the unity of the church is maybe the most powerful weapon in our arsenal. So ask yourself the question this week, how does what I'm doing fit into what we're doing? Let me pray for you. God, I'm always amazed that you use us because I'm aware that you don't, you don't have to. You're fully capable without us. But thank you for including us in what you're doing. Uh, your love, your grace, your mercy in that way never, never ceases to amaze me. And so, God, I thank you for this family, this house that you are building. Uh, God, I pray that you would extend to us the grace to build you a beautiful house. 
to be an incredible representation of who you are. And Lord, to whatever degree that you can use us, God, we're available to you. Lord, we're available for your purpose, and we've made it our priority. So God, I pray you'd help us to go out the door and walk in that authority, to know that you are for us, that your spirit dwells with us, to know that you have a preferred future in mind. I pray you'd give us the confidence of knowing you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Rick.